0: Hey folks, welcome to episode 145 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Rafe Kelly. He is the founder of Evolve Move Play, an organization that teaches movement training for people based on the concept that we evolve to move in specific ways in nature. They teach self-development through um, play and movement in a natural environment. He's also the host of the Evolve Move Play podcast, Um, and he was one of the first parkour teachers in North America, and he co-founded Parkour Visions. Rafe was a gymnast, and then he got into parkour. He became a teacher in many forms of play in a natural setting through the organization that he founded. He's a really interesting guy who has a lot of well-developed thoughts on building character and learning about yourself through movement. And I find it to be an interesting place. A big thing for me was getting into sports and getting into it for more reasons than to just achieve, like, the cutting edge of, like, of whatever that is, right? Being the fastest or... Um, competing at the highest level etc there seems to be so much more to that experience and Rafe was an exploration of that um, to learn more about Rafe's classes um, or to listen to his podcast you can go to evolve com, and I'll make sure to leave the links to that and relevant things in the show notes I also um, put a video on the the website cominghumanpodcast.com where Rafe and um, a former guest on the podcast, Dusty, went canyoneering and Rafe was using his like a combination of parkour and canyoneering skills to, to play around and enjoy the environment. It's really cool the way that you can combine different kinds of sports and adventure to create really unique and compelling experiences for your, that inspire you based on your personality. Um. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to play you out with a song called Liquid Severity by um, Idea and Abilities. Without any further ado, here's Rafe.
1: Rain, Harvested thought only comes after rain Artists may talk and give it different names When they appear wet they may feel ashamed So they don't walk but instead take the train And when that ride stops they notice the strange Sense of degeneration they've obtained While the world evolves they stand and turn lame Storm is prerequisite to mental gain. Just about
2: 16 years ago um, month, uh, January of 2005 My older brother um, had this collection of videos, uh, that someone had put on a hard drive and sent to him and a bunch of weird stuff. And one of them was a video of David Bell and he showed it to me and uh, I was just gobsmacked by it. And so I went back and watched it again and took down David Bell's name cause it was in the credits there and went and looked him up on, on probably Google. I don't <laughs> know. It's a long time ago. Is Google <laughs> a thing? I think so. Um, and I found a, par, uh, a website called leparcours.net, Um and I—I I didn't. It was like talking about it as something that you could do, right? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't had that idea. I just wanted there was something really intriguing about what this guy was doing. Once I had the idea, okay, I could do this. I started reading the website and studying what they were doing, and I started like balancing on rails outside my classes. But I was kind of afraid to do it, which is funny because I've been doing martial arts since I was six years old, and I was uh, teaching gymnastics at the time and doing gymnastics. Um, So the movement was kind of familiar to you in some way. The movement was familiar to me, but, you know, obviously he was jumping between buildings and stuff, so not as as seemingly um, safe.
0: Uh, Yeah, because the exposure is a lot higher there because you don't—with those things— in rea- in practice you're not um, providing safety nets you're yeah. increasing your technical ability so that you don't ever make
2: that mistake right yeah yeah I mean we talk about risk versus danger so danger is what are the consequences of failure and risk is what is the likelihood of failure mm-hmm. so I think any adventure sport athlete learns to calibrate if they if they Stay in the sport over the long term. They have to learn to calibrate their uh, their risk level to be extraordinarily low when they allow their danger level to be high. Mm-hmm. So when you see Alex Honnold, you know, free solo half dome, like to you, it's incomprehensible. To me, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> um, but his skill level is at a, a point where he doesn't feel really like there's a high risk of him failing or mm-hmm. even. I would, I would guess that basically he has to feel like there's no risk of him failing before mm-hmm. he would try something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, we approach these things, but that's all something that you figure out in the process or you're taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that's obvious when you're watching a video of somebody on the first time, uh, doing this. Um, but I was living here in Bellingham at the time and it was funny. I had a, uh, uh, a, a, a Queens, I guess. It was a guy I knew through the gymnastics gym that I worked at. And he came in for the adult classes. His name was Dane. And the first time that I taught the adult gymnastics class, they were like, oh, you got to watch out for Dane. You know, he he's always doing sort of crazy stuff. You got to make sure he's being safe. He's like swinging on the rings and mm-hmm. swinging from bar to bar and dive rolling over oh. vault boxes and stuff. And so I told Dane like about parkour because I thought that he was someone who'd be intrigued by it. And... um, He came into the office and got them to give, give me, give them, give him my number. And then he called me and said, Hey, do you want to come out and do some parkour? And, uh, (laughs) at the time I was in the middle of finals. I was like, I can't right now, but yeah, let's do it after finals. And so we did. And like right away, I just fell in love with it and we're doing it, you know, three, four days a week. Uh, and then we're getting together and boxing and sword fighting on other days and oh, playing wow. Morrowind and you know, uh just hanging out a lot. We were like You guys are playing Morrowind? Buddies. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so you guys were able to have like this very, you know, um, athletic
0: kind of relationship and then also this like leisurely
2: uh, Yeah, we had video a deep games. friendship that developed real quick and um, wow. yeah, we were watching like uh, the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Mm-hmm. Like, we got really into <laughs> that together. Um, so yeah, it's cool. So I just moved back to Bellingham a month ago, and so. I've been uh, able to hang out with Dane pretty regularly now. Oh, again. really? So, you know, we just, uh, I was telling you about how l- last weekend, uh, I dove off of a Falls in the, in the snow. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. that cool. Yeah. And so I was doing that with Dane, you know, he's a big cliff diver, so it's, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: right. Coming man. full circle. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Especially when you, when you get to have things like that, that you get to relate to with other people, you know, and develop those bonds. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a
2: lot of, uh, there's nothing that creates deep social connection like going through intense and beautiful experiences with other people mm-hmm. right like the the friendship you have with somebody who you jump off a cliff with is actually not the same as someone who you just meet for drinks with so that's something that I've that I've discovered
0: as I've gotten into different kinds of forms of recreation you know from martial mm-hmm. arts rock climbing and running like the the kinds of experiences that you that you go the highs and the lows um it like intensifies the bonds that you have with that other person in ways that like like for me you know growing up like getting like married really young and you know having a kid and like for me always like kind of seeking some like deep connection with other people and realizing at least when i was younger that seeking that connection, um, and attachment through like relationship, like a romantic relationship can have its shortcomings. Right. Um, and, but with, in with family, um, I would think that like getting together for holidays and stuff for me, it was fun, but it wasn't very, like, I didn't feel very close with anybody. Yeah. And when I got into, I'd feel lost and not having like very deep connections with people, even friends, um, but then I get into martial arts and I get into rock climbing and I go through all of these, I would almost say involuntary like emotions. Right. And I look back at those relationships and I've never felt more like socially fulfilled and satisfied than I do now. And I, these people, I feel closer than my own family, you know, not my like son because I've shared those experiences with my son, which I'm really grateful for, but it's an odd thing going out into like, Uncomfortable and challenging things, and what
2: that does to you. Yeah, voluntarily, anyways. Yeah. Um. Are you familiar with Sebastian Younger? Um. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote that book called Tribe, right? And, yeah. Uh, you know, he's a war reporter, and you know, one of the things that he discovered is that people who come home from war suffer a lot of depression. Um, and, you know, it's usually attributed to the trauma of war and I'm sure that contributes to it, but he said that what he saw was that a lot of times what they were suffering was that when they were in the field, they felt like what they were doing was meaningful Mm. and they felt like the people around them mattered deeply Mm -hmm. to them and they mattered deeply to the, the people around them. And then they lost that when they came back to, um you know, the life that we're living here in the West, I guess, mm-hmm. on average. And so he, he said something on the Joe Rogan podcast I really like. He said, um, what human beings like, like best is being part of a small group, being an integral part of a small group struggling for survival. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really struck me because, because essentially I think we, we really crave a sense of deep intimacy with other people. And part of that is like being able to rely on each other Mm -hmm. and you, you can trust and know that you can rely on somebody better. Once you've been through intense experiences with them, you know who they are, Mm -hmm. right? You, you've seen how they react under pressure, um, and I don't know that we necessarily want to be struggling for survival, mm-hmm. but we need some kind of positive struggle that we can be engaged in, mm-hmm. in order to give our life a sense of meaning and in order to grow. There's no, there's no growth without struggle. And so when you take on martial arts or adventure sports or parkour or whatever it is, um, and you do it with other people, it provides, a uh, A way for you to practice growing as a human being Mm -hmm. that's connected deeply with other people and their growth. And I think that's why it is such a catalyst for profound and meaningful friendships. And
0: I think it puts that opportunity in your control a little more because to, to hope that you were to find that in a professional environment... Um, can feel very hopeless in some way yeah. because you can't always control what you're, what you use to make money or what yeah. you do to make money. Um, or can you control that, that environment or how the ways that you have skills also satisfies and fulfills that. Right. Um, I've had a situation, it's kind of interesting when I was in the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. um, I used to have a hard time and in, in like cry a lot and and talk to my counselor at school because I was uh, in the kitchen and everyone there was in their 30s and 40s and stuff. But they, um, I wasn't very like socialized, um, especially around like making jokes and poking fun at each other. But in the kitchen, what they would do is, is they would take my shoes and like my street shoes, I got my work shoes on yeah. and they'd put it in a bag. And they'd submerge it in water and they'd freeze it. (laughs) And then it'd be the end of the work and I didn't know where my shoes are and they wouldn't tell me. And they'd go on and they'd be like, oh, here's your shoes. You know, one time um, they did that with like my my casual shirt or something. Yeah. um, And the bag burst open. And no, they did it with my shoes. Bag burst open. Shoes kind of got ruined. Right. Um, They bought me new shoes Mm -hmm. and I used to cry. Before that, and even after, because I thought these people hated me. They'd throw peas at me. They'd throw eggs and, like, whip me with towels, but I'd whip them with towels, you know, and it would, like, sometimes it escalate and someone went too far and they'd get mad. Um, I talked to my counselor and she said, like, it's kind of something that along the lines of what you were talking about, like, well, historically, if people needed to be able to see if they can trust you. They, they would generally like tease you and, and push you to the edge to be able to see how you'd react. So when push came to shove and they really needed you, they can determine if they could rely on you or not before it actually mattered. And I was like, that was very interesting because it was through that, um, that like poking fun at each other that we bonded. And those people were like another layer when in my youth. It was like, oh, I've never felt as close to anybody as I felt with these people. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was interesting because you really learned a lot from hurting each other's feelings and having that, like that room for that, because you, you cross the line. And I guess it's, I was learning to be socialized in a lot of ways, crossing those lines and learning how to like ask for forgiveness and show that you're sorry. And then still even being able to play and like go back to the towel whipping, but maybe not dip it in hot oil this time. Um, But it was interesting because in that, in the restaurant, it doesn't ever feel like that. Like it, it survival feels like an abstraction Mm -hmm. where like, I just have to show up for work, you know, and if it ever gets really hard, it's like, I just quit or give up. And I remember crying because the work was so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But the experience that I have when I go out for like rock climbing or running and it's so overwhelming, or even in martial arts, that feels a lot more um, intense and less of an abstraction. Yeah, and that feeling has like not has made it to where naturally, without any of like this like jovial, like you know, joking around and pranking, that I've been able to get there just from the sheer experience alone. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting because you see some people who like. Um, call for you know how things used to be right whether or not that's valid or not but like within our own society it's very unlikely um and i don't really understand to to like be regressive right and to like try to make things go back to the way that they like were you know and in before industrial you know sure. modern era but doing these things it's like that's in your control and those there's many opportunities out there to find ways to like simulate you know, like a life or death or very intense scenario with other people to develop those bonds. And I think it's cool because even when you provide those to like a like youth or whatever, who might not access that kind of like I was when I was a kid and have the money or the means to get to those places. But when you provide that for those people, it's like a way out that they can figure out, mm-hmm. you know, without you detailing like with a, a, a board of people like, you know, what, how this kid should be treated and all these other kinds of things. You can give them like a parkour experience or a running experience
2: and they can like sort themselves out in relation to the community. Yeah. I mean, I think these dynamics have, are just part of being, you know, the, the strange naked primate that we are. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, what you're pointing out is is that or what I get out of it is something along the lines of like, there's, there's, there's a. There's more mature, or more useful, or more powerful, maybe more even more authentic expressions of the same principle. Because, right? mm-hmm. like, you can, you, you know, you might be working with people, and and you want, you know, ultimately, maybe we all crave some sense of intimacy. We crave some sense of of connection to other people, and we're seeking it. But also, we we want to be able to trust people, and you know, we want to be able to maybe feel like. Uh, we can let ourselves out a little bit. And maybe the the version of ourselves that we would like to be able to let out, we feel might be threatening to people, right? Mm -hmm. And so we got to test them and see, right? Is this someone I can trust? Is this someone I can be around? And that can come out in a way that looks like heckling and bullying and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe pretty negative in certain ways, right? And then it's like, maybe you go to a martial arts class and you find... Well, ultimately, in some sense, you're 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 you have a structured way to heckle each other mm. and to 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 test each other. But now the lines are drawn a little bit clearer and the purpose that you're oriented towards is a little bit more in depth and nuanced. Mm. Right. But then even within a martial arts gym, you could have uh, a martial arts gym that's very mature in how they kind of scale challenge. Mm-hmm. And match it to people and how they articulate the ethics of who they're trying to become and and how they're trying to help people become and you can have one that that's that's more like your uh your your you know your uh it's closer to whipping each other with towels right mm-hmm. um so so I think sometimes when we when we look at these things and we just sort of say hey this is this is wrong or bad uh we don't always ask, like, where's this coming from? And is there a better and more mature expression of it? Mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think in general, our culture is very, very allergic to the idea of violence. Mm-hmm. And there's good reasons for that. Violence is very costly and can traumatize people in, in, in ways that are unrecoverable from Yeah. Know? That's a, a, when you cross that boundary, that one's really hard to undo, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but the violence is... A reality of the human experience. Mm-hmm. It's a reality of the human heritage. It's a reality of human drives. Um, mm-hmm. So if you if you if you try to act like it's not there, um, you're repressing something.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, my friend Rory Miller says we 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 treat violence now like they treated sex in the 1950s, mm. right? And it's not a healthy way to do it, right? And so. Mm. The the opposite of the 1960s maybe is the late, or the 1950s is maybe the late 60s, right? Where you have free love and that didn't turn out to work out out so well either, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe just like Fight Club isn't such a good solution to human Mm -hmm. uh, violence either. But maybe there's a higher level version of it, right? Maybe there's a a cultivation of it and an awareness of it and an ability to to look at it in a um, open-minded way, Mm -hmm. um, in a less judgmental way. That, uh, that can take us to being more mature and self-actualized human beings. I like guess. Yeah, and it's interesting
0: because y- you see um, some things like that. I see that with emergent behavior with children, and when they have, when children have violent tendencies, and oftentimes the 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 thing that people will do, you know, usually out of like love, and sometimes out of fear too, is like try to. Um, repress and try to prevent them from engaging in any form of violence. Yeah. And I find that just in my history with emotionally, behaviorally delayed children, and then even just with children in general, is it seems to almost exacerbate the problem mm-hmm. in that way. And the fear is, is that like v- the association of violence just in and of itself just being a bad thing. But I, that's interesting because you're right. Yeah. Like sex was in and of itself just associated with being bad. Right. Yeah. And yeah. like people's puritanical beliefs. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's, I find like, just like risk or risky, doing risky things is not inherently bad either, but when you engage with them, it's perhaps one of the ways that you feel really alive. Yeah. And that's where I derive a lot of
2: like the meaning and purpose out of that. Yeah. We, well, to to go back to the Sebastian Younger quote, Mm -hmm. you know, he follows that up by saying we like that because people who didn't like that didn't survive in our Evolutionary past, right? Because that was the default condition. Mm-hmm. The default condition was there's not a lot of people around, and the people who are, who are around you've got to be really tightly connected to, and you better do something to help everybody survive, mm-hmm. because otherwise things are going to go south fast, mm-hmm. right? And so we survived by by being able to find a sense of meaning in those situations, mm-hmm. but we didn't. We didn't having. Uh, no physical challenge in your life, having very little challenge to your ability to put food on the table, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people feel like that's a challenge in some sense, but, um, obesity, uh, obesity tells a very different story about our ability to to get food in this culture. Mm -hmm. Um, when we live in such a culture, we, we're not really set up necessarily to find that meaningful and, and that we, we have a conflict. I mean, I, I can go deep onto the subject because I think that there's a, there's a there, part of what's playing out is this this conflict in human nature between the desire to seek comfort and mm-hmm. the desire to seek challenge. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we have is we have the capacity to avoid challenge in a way that that we've never had before. Mm -hmm. But it's not just that we have a capacity to avoid challenge. We have a culture that, that in some sense is actively inhibiting the parts of ourselves that want to seek challenge. Mm -hmm. Right. We have, um, (sighs) the thing is that people who, who, who know, that they can take on difficult challenges and who are creative and who are excited about trying something new, they're disruptive to whatever the system is, mm-hmm. right? And so if you look at the history of the education system, the the schools that we have, schooling was largely something that people who were economically elite did, all mm-hmm. right? And most people worked on farms and they learned how to work on farms by growing up on farms. And there was no need for a working class kid to be, uh, to go through an extensive education. Yeah. Right? Most people were illiterate until quite recently. But my understanding of it is that the, the modern schooling system arose in parallel with the factory uh, yeah. manufacturing system. And during the Industrial Revolution, all of you, all of a sudden, you have kind of a new set of tasks that that people need to be able to accomplish. And so you 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 know you didn't you didn't have the ability to sort of organically grow into a farmer or organically grow into a hunter forager as had happened in the past. Mm-hmm. It's like you were going to go. People were still farming. People were still doing other things, but the primary economic activity all of a sudden <sighs> were these very strange unique things. And Mm -hmm. so you needed people who are good at that. And so I think that to a significant degree, uh, and I'm drawing on the work of Peter Gray here, our, our, our education system arose as a system to create potential farm workers. Mm -hmm. And you don't like the things that people do in some sense to be self-actualized are not really well aligned with being a, consistent and productive factory worker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think sometimes our culture has really, really... Our education system is built in some ways to inhibit our inherent drives to move and to play and to explore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's part of it. And then Mm -hmm. I also think that we have... We've sort of lost access to the... Male pole of the parental role mm, mm-hmm. um, that that the ma- that ma- the masculine pole is the risk taking pole, and the feminine pole is the nurturing pole, and I think I have a whole theory about the loss of fatherhood mm-hmm. uh, which we could go into I don't yeah. let's not call it a theory um but So, yeah, so I think in some sense we're suffering from uh, a feminization mm-hmm. of, of our culture around risk. And the way that I look at it, feminine and masculine are both valuable, right? Mm-hmm. They're both necessary and important components of every individual human being. And a system can become um, dysfunctional when it verges, moves too far towards mm-hmm. either pole. Mm-hmm. But also there's always levels of the expression of those poles. So you can have, uh, immature masculine and immature feminine, and you can have mature masculine and feminine, right? Mm. And really mature is about being able to have those yin yangs. But our, our schooling system is 80% female, right? Mm -hmm. Our our teachers are 80% female. And I think that, um, There's a, there's a safetyism that has crept in because there isn't the pull of the people saying these children need risk. Like the kid, the, we just moved out of the Seattle schools district, but the, the school that my kids were going to like their, their, their motto is safe, kind, and helpful. And I was like, where's bold and courageous and discriminating and, you know, critical and all of these other components, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is about safety. It's the, it's the embodiment of safetyism culture. And I think that's uh, actually very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Safety is... Making safety your priority is incredibly dangerous. How is it incredibly dangerous? Like... Because what keeps you safe in the moment keeps you from growing and becoming anti-fragile.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you can, be, you can be safe right now, or you can be the type of thing that turns risk into advantage in the long run, but mm-hmm. you can not be both. Mm-hmm. And so we seek out martial arts, we seek out adventure sports, we seek out skateboarding um, and parkour and all these things because they allow us to start cultivating the relationship with danger and risk. And it's in that that we can find growth. And you know, so many of the people who are leaders in these communities are people who struggled very much in the schooling system because, yeah. because they needed it. They needed to test those edges that's the fun that's fascinating because with the
0: kiddos that I work with emotion, who are emotionally were emotionally who had emotional behavioral disabilities like yeah. I work with one who every time you would ask him to do to do some form of like work yeah and regardless of how how easy you made it unless it was like a kindergarten level but he was he was 10 or 11 and um, he'd constantly would try to like try to fight you. Yeah. And then he'd throw rocks at you and stuff. And um, and if you give him more, he just always wanted to play. And the interesting thing was, is like, I playing's learning. Like, you, you know, playing yeah. and playing facilitated, is- right? A facilitated, like, structured it play. It doesn't is when he's by himself. It yeah.
2: like- doesn't have to be facilitated. Play is the evolutionarily designed system for children to self-educate themselves. Yeah. Right? Like, in every culture... In the world, children will inherently play by adopting behavior that they see being played out in the adult world. They want to acquire, they have an inherent drive to acquire the cultural toolkit of wherever they're at Mm -hmm. to become competent human beings. Uh, I mentioned Peter Gray. He talks about in his book, Free to Learn, that um, they did this experiment in India, I believe, where they took computers into the slums of I think it was Mumbai Mm -hmm. and they just put these computers there and set them up such that like the kids could figure them out. And so the kids basically like had to figure out how to create a password and then get into the thing. And then eventually like, you know, they taught, they all figured it out and taught each other how to like start emails and get onto web forums and all these things. And, And so the point of that whole thing was that like a child who has no, formal education, Mm -hmm. right. Or doesn't even have access to formal education, has the intelligence to see that a computer is a tool Mm. and that tool has some power to, to, to give them something, right. If they, if they walk over and they see some other kid playing video games Mm -hmm. and they're like, man, I want to be able to play video games. And if the cost of being able to play video games, is having to figure out how to set up a login. It's like, they'll learn to type. They'll do these things for themselves. So, so kids have that inherent drive Mm -hmm. and, and and what they, they call it play, right? Mm-hmm. So my kids, when they, when they're playing, they're pretending to, you know, be moms mm-hmm. and be nurses and be firefighters yeah. and, and be all these roles that play out in society and they're mimicking it. And if you look at hunter hundred forager cultures, like little boys start making bow and arrows mm-hmm. when they're three years old and start shooting at things mm-hmm. right? and they may shoot at lizards, right? <laughs> and then essentially their play behavior just slowly grows into the behavior of, of being able to, to, to send a boa, to send an arrow, to shoot an arrow at a full grown, you know, adult uh, prey animal and bring mm. it back to the village. Um, and boys and girls both play with gathering foods and mm-hmm. pretending different foods or things and paying attention to that. And girls tend to play a lot more with, with pretending things are dolls and babies and, um, mm-hmm. We see this even in like baboons and chimpanzees. So yeah, play, play is an inherent drive to that. Um, so uh, that's something that I think a lot of people really don't recognize is how much wisdom there is in children's play and mm-hmm. how much we should be thinking about the education system less as at um, at odds with play mm-hmm. and more as like, how do we amplify this process and how do we help fill the gaps that might, that, that the sort of evolutionary programming might not align perfectly with the modern world that we live in. Because mm-hmm. people are very adaptable, yeah, right? Within the framework.
0: And mm-hmm. I found with that kiddo, like it was interesting because that relationship you'd always associate with me. with was like some person who's trying to make him do work and it would, the only thing you'd look forward to is play right mm-hmm. and but the difference there was that i would play with them yeah play with all the kids um which is fun for me but I, I also thought like that was the real way like he wants to connect and i want to connect and that's exactly i want to spend time with someone you know mm-hmm. um voluntary time but it, i'd put them up um he wanted to learn how to go up on a pull-up bar. It was the size up to my shoulders. Yeah. Uh, at the playground, it's this is like kindergarten or first grade all the way to high school, and they had like a playground for for six-year-olds. But he would climb up onto the bar and like stand up on there. But he would start shaking and get really scared. And this kid's like super, uh, very inflated ego. Like I'm really strong. I can. I can. Yeah. I can beat you. Like these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And he get up there and he's like, well. Will you will you, hold, will you like hold my hand please mm-hmm. I'm like really afraid I'm gonna fall always pretends not afraid of anything and it was like Okay, and he's like do you think I could sit on the bar? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I bet you could and this kid is like I could do everything right mm-hmm. and he's like legitimately afraid and there's no hiding it that he can do He genuinely needs my help and so I help him And I help him to sit on the bar and I teach him how to like hang upside down, but that took like a few months Mm-hmm. And that was the only thing he wanted to do, yeah. And like, it, it, what was hard for him is his relationship with learning was so like, it was so like malaligned or whatever from what happened that if you would play a game, he would ask you, "Hey, I need you to read it," and then if like you know read the instructions for me, and it's like, mm-hmm. well. Like, you know, I'd want you to, to do a little bit of something. Like, help me read it, right? Anything he detected that, it would be an immediate, like, escalation. I'm not playing. Yeah. You're trying to make me learn. Mm-hmm. But in this this scenario, I would, like, help him. And he got to the point to where he can hang upside down. And he was super confident. And I'd never seen this kid, like, confident, yeah. have a skill set that somebody else might not possess, um, be proud of himself. And then he relied on me. And then he would start at—he'd, like— developed an attachment to me yeah. there that I wasn't able to, to do just by showing up. And then like what happened later on is we started playing hide and seek for like um, on their recesses. And we would take a group of kids and we would go play hide and seek. And through that hide and seek, we were able to teach like socializing skills. They would go into the counseling office, They're usually out like, you know, for an hour during their regular class time. They're in the class with similar students all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they would try to facilitate like abstracted versions of like social, proper social behavior. And it would always escalate. And like, you'd have to escort children out, have put kids in hold sometimes. And it was never, there's a lot of bullying, things like that. Um, and even the people that you'd protect in that environment from being bullied actually were bullying somebody like the, the other person or hitting you or something. It was very interesting. But we go out and we do, like, tag. And I realized, like, there's all of these things. They're they're voluntarily learning. This is the first time that I'd ever have these, like, you know, group of 10 kids, like, voluntarily want to learn anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, like, the, the reward was not some abstraction because in the school well, what they would do, and there's a place for this, but permanently I don't I don't really know about that over the long term. It's like if you do this, you're gonna watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no eventual move to have an intrinsic motivator. Sure. And like this became an intrinsic motivator and I actually wanted to play with them. Mm-hmm. So having that kind of bond, it like mm-hmm. those are the kinds of relationships that I wanted to have with with children, with my own child and myself and friends. But then within that, that system, I'm not like denigrating the whole education system. I just was like, I didn't really understand what it looked like from an adult perspective and with people who were
2: struggling with socializing. I think there's a, a big need for that. And I think that, uh, that parkour and martial arts are mm-hmm. potentially like really powerful interventions for kids who are struggling with the things you, you experienced. That's my own kind of history. So I was um, I was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia mm-hmm. and when I was a child struggling a lot in school um, my dad had struggled in a very similar way has the same learning disabilities and he you know he, he had a really hard time he wanted to take me out of school and basically unschool me from a very early age and my mom wasn't up for that so it was a big conflict and he kind of checked out on being a dad because it was too oh, painful yeah. for a little while Um And so I was really angry and I got in a lot of fights and, you know, I remember uh, when I was in second grade, there was a little boy who said that the kid I had considered my best friend was his best friend. Mm -hmm. And I I remember knocking him down and grabbing the back of his head and smacking it into the concrete to the point that his nose was split open, his lips were split open, he was bleeding out of it. I remember being in detention for six weeks after that. I I don't know. Like memory is a weird thing and it gets Mm -hmm. elaborated over time. So I'm not sure how bad that kid was hurt. And, uh, you know, I don't remember ever seeing that kid again or talking to that kid. Like he doesn't exist in my mind as like a person who is, who's going on, uh, in my life. Maybe he was in a different classroom than me or something, Mm -hmm. but, uh, so, yeah I mean, maybe he he bled a little bit, and it just got exaggerated in my mind I, I don't know memories is funny memory weird but but anyways, like I'm pretty sure i was in, uh, mm-hmm. in 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 detention for six weeks, and that probably meant I, I did some pretty violent things mm-hmm. um i also was in i was in detention a lot, and I got in a lot of fights and um and so when I was eight, there was a man who moved in next door and he uh, so we owned land and we had a bunch of pieces, a bunch of rental units on the land and he rented one of those units. Um, and I tried to get my dad and my brother and this guy, Travis, all to help me put up a hammock one day and none of them could do it. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I asked Uncle Paul and he, he said he'd do it. Right. And he kind of just got really attached to me after that. And, I uh, started babysitting me for a lot for my, my mom. And then after third grade, they basically, they had wanted to hold held me, hold me back every year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and my mom had petitioned me through, but after third grade, they were like, no, like, you know, he, he's clearly not advanced. You have to keep him in uh, third grade. And so we, they decided to homeschool me and my mom and Gopal were going to split that, mm-hmm. um, at first, but, uh, or she was going to do it, but she really didn't have time. You know, she was, she was the primary breadwinner too. and Oh Yeah. So he ended up taking over my education and, you know, he offered to do that. So, so I, I remember the first day that like I showed up, you know, he was like my playmate. He was my friend. Right. And mm-hmm. then he wanted me to actually do homework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he, he made me write lines on my first day. I was really angry, but he was just like, you have to just write these lines. Right. And so I said, Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Oh, <laughs> he looked at the lines and said, "Okay." You wrote a mm-hmm. page of lines and let me go. And but but he would roughhouse with me all the time. Oh yeah, There's intense physical wrestling play mm-hmm. a lot, and uh, that was incredibly valuable to me. And it really regulated me, and it gave me a, a something to sort of a reward for for the work that I was doing. It also gave me an emotional outlet. Like, I don't remember this very well, but he, he says that I would, i would call him the shadow mm-hmm. and I would just physically attack him as hard as I could. And, you know, uh, and I think I blacked out. Like, I think that like the mm-hmm. emotional process that I was going through was so intense that I like lost conscious awareness during these things, mm-hmm. but he was there for me and, and let me, let me do that with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked through it. And then the other thing that he did is he read, uh, the Lord of the Rings to me. And Uh-oh. that was, uh, sufficiently motivational that it made me very interested in being able to read it to myself. And so we went from the Lord of the Rings to the Iliad and the Odyssey. And oh, wow. I think we made maybe the Belgariad by David Eddings and other stuff like that. But yeah, we, we got into that. And so that's how I, I overcame my learning disabilities. And so then when I was 12 or 13 years old, I was uh, 12 years old, I was, uh, I was part of this religious group called the uh, Red Cedar Circle, which is like a Native American uh, religious re, re sort of um, revival, but <laughs> mostly mostly white people. And there are all these like t- young kids there that were kind of running around being the young kids and needed some help to be supervised. And so I started like helping babysit kids at these events and. Mm-hmm. They all just wanted to rough house with me. Right. Uh-huh. And, and I could see that they were just like, kids just had this insane craving to have intense physical play. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did that for kids. And then, um, when I was in, when I was 13, my, my closest friend at the time died, he, he crashed his bike and they, he ruptured mm-hmm. his spleen. So they took his spleen out. And when they did, they didn't suture him properly. And he hemorrhaged out in his sleep. Oh no. Um, and he had a six year old brother. And so, after after uh, a couple months after he died, his mom called me, and she basically said that that Zach, the little boy, he was having trouble falling asleep at night because he was used to roughhousing with his older brother, and so they asked me to come over and just basically roughhouse with him. And so, like, mm-hmm. I got really close with this kid, just throwing him around and beating him up every <laughs> regularly, and he needed that. Yeah, um, and so he was like his surrogate brother for a while. Wow. So then, when I was nineteen, maybe eighteen, mm-hmm. I started working with like at-risk youth, like you did. Mm-hmm. And there's there's all these boys, and they all they all needed it. It was the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I was stupid, and I <laughs> I uh, I bought groceries, and I had some alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I asked one of the moms if I could put my my groceries in her fridge, and she saw alcohol, and I was underage, oh. so I got fired. Um, oh no! But which was really tragic. It was really hard on the kids that I was working with because like they, there just weren't that many people who could show up that way for them (laughs) and give them that kind of play. And I don't know what it is, but it feels like, I mean, there's a real taboo about rough and tumble play. Like I worked as a gymnastics coach for a long time and like, we were really specifically told we weren't allowed to, to like hug the kids Uh or play with them. And like, I just ignored it. Yeah. I was yeah. like, you know, like the owner of the gym would watch me in the, in the pit. Like we used to play this game where we'd, we'd have a foam pit and we'd have a big giant foam block in mm-hmm. the pit and we'd play king of the foam block. Right. Yeah. And so all these kids would be trying to wrestle me <laughs> and like, you know, he would told me the rules and he'd see me wrestling with the kids and he'd see the way they responded and he'd just turn and walk away. Right? Oh yeah. he just see that it was so, so that the kids were getting so much out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, well, the experience you, I just thought I'd share my own experience because I think it reinforces what you're saying. And I think that, um, that we really need to, to, to recover this. And, um, this comes to, to that idea of like the, like you could call it the hyperfeminization of our like culture around children and how we raise children, Mm -hmm. but it's That, that almost, like that almost pathologizes the wrong thing because it's not, it's almost not so much that, that, that there's something wrong with the feminine as it's being applied. It's that there's like, that the masculine somehow defaulted out and ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And like... (sighs) Temperance is like something that I find is very important in a lot of
0: things, right? Where like just just going, you know, 100% in one direction, right? You find the middle way with everything. And (laughs) when there is no temperance with with something, um, like I do find that pretty dangerous. And what I found was in like, I know it's probably never could be like this or never has been. But within the own school system, I realized that like um, I couldn't physically like the only way I'd be able to physically touch you. Um, is if you're assaulting me and I have to escort you, <laughs> and like that was like, yeah. whoa, this is. Yeah, kind And a lot of, of kids
2: might just attack you just so they can, just t- so they can be touched. And that's what we thought with like the kiddo that yeah. I would work with. Yeah, because people because touch is actually a n- nutrient that we need. Yeah, especially some kids especially need it, right? And that compromises
0: safety because that yeah. does not fall in line with safety. I find because yeah. and that's where I find in the gymnastics if I'm right in inferring this is that there's like. That thing, at least with like physical touch with children and like molestation and things like that, there's like a lot of fear around there. And so I feel like that has been like a hard boundary.
2: Well, I mean, there's without regard. Yeah, I mean, the boundary arises for a reason, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's justified. Yeah. I don't know if you followed all the stuff that happened with USA Gymnastics. I had not. I applied for doctor and uh, I mean, you know like the girls who are literally on the national team for gymnastics yeah. were getting systematically sexually abused by their that doctor for crazy. a long period of time. And like when I was talking to, when I worked as a gymnastics coach, like I heard stories about it. Like, yeah, and I mean, I, I remember working as a gymnastics coach. I was what, 20, must've been 22, 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one particular young woman who you know, she's probably 17 years old, 16 years old who I could, I could sense that she was attracted to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and when I was around her, it felt unsafe. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want, like, I'm not going to work with team girl with like, with girls above a certain age. I didn't want to do that because it just didn't feel like a, like at least at the stage that I was in my life, then I was like, Mm I don't think I would have done anything, but also Mm -hmm. like I've been around a lot of sexual abuse in my life and Mm -hmm. it was just something that I like, I had to keep my boundaries really, really tight.
0: That's the thing that I, that I find though, that I, I find that as well, because in teaching scenarios, right. It's like, okay, I've had one example where like you have a a girl and she's like, she's nine years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like going to go, right. Like I teach the girl. Yeah. And, um, I'm saying this as someone who, yeah, sure. uh, yeah. I don't know why I have that preamble. Because I get wor- worried in that way. It's like I try my best and I always try to make all the best choices that I can. And I really care about people. And I don't want to get misconstrued for something else, right? Mm-hmm. But like nine-year-old and I teach her and teach my son too. And like they're on, um, they're doing like a play date or whatever. Yeah. And the, the nine-year-old's playing Minecraft. Mm-hmm. And she's showing my son and I Minecraft. She's really excited to show me Minecraft and my son. Well, I play Minecraft with my son, Mm -hmm. right? And I was like, whoa, that's cool. And I was asking her some questions. And my son, you know, a little more shy, wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I know her parents, but she's just really excited. I'm in the office and her parents are in the living room and we're a door apart. Yeah. And my son and I and the girl are in the office and she's explaining Minecraft to me. And then I'm like, oh, cool. And then I transition to have a conversation with the parents. And, like, she's, oh, well, like, waiting for my attention and just really excited to talk to me. And, like, me, it's like, oh, this is a person who really admires me. Mm -hmm. Then the other one is, is like, oh, I got to be really careful here because she's, like, trying to shut the door so that I don't talk to her parents and so that I talk to her. And this would be someone who's just trying to form, like, an attachment and like, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in things and like, I look up to you, but that also though is a big responsibility because that you have to be very careful with those boundaries that you set.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy. Yeah. Like, am I right I about that? Where you like, you feel like there's
0: like, there's the a scenario like that, where you have like, like a responsibility on your shoulders yeah. to direct this in a very like,
2: oh, for sure. You know, I mean, safe... I, I, I was, it's not that she
0: was indicating anything. No, no. Just...
2: I, 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 I get where you're coming from with some of the traumas that I grew up around. Mm-hmm. Right. I like, I had, my boundaries had to be like way past what was like, like normal. Yeah. Right. Because. Um, because I would get agitated and scared, even if Mm -hmm. like other people were behaving totally safe and normal, like actually totally normal ways, but ways Mm -hmm. that like a predatory person could take advantage of. Mm. I was like, if I had a, uh, if I had a student who, who sort of, uh, like if I had a student who wanted to be alone with me, who was a young girl, a private lesson, right. I would be like. Yeah, no, and right. that was a problem. Like, with yeah, that like too. I wouldn't, I would, you know, I like the 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 coach who worked with the team boys that I worked with before. He used to take them on overnight field trips mm-hmm. and camping, and I thought that was a really cool and really good way to bond with the kids. But I couldn't, I couldn't personally do it because yeah. I was uncomfortable. Um, and I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but you know, to go back to the the point, um, in gymnastics there is a history of of the abuse of those positions. Yeah. Right. And and so there's a reason why our culture has become very hyper aware of that and mm-hmm. hyper concerned about that because it's real. Right. But somehow we've also thrown out a baby with the bathwater, which is like, you know, kids need to be able to play, kids need to be able to be touched, they need to be able to be hugged, they need to be able to be given love. And mm-hmm. we gotta we gotta think of other ways that we can we can sort of create, you know, there People who are traumatized mm-hmm. create uh, excessive boundaries, right? Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a nuanced and appropriate boundary, and then there's like I'm gonna build all the castle walls around mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Right. And and that's the weird thing is that like sometimes when you're busy building the castle wall, you don't even notice the gaping hole that the predator <laughs> sneaks through. Yep. Right. <laughs> um, so there's like when you're when you actually pull back the castle wall sometimes, you have better sensitivity and more ability to see what's actually happening. Well,
0: you, you get that. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this, but you get that when you're in a climbing scenario or maybe a parkour scenario where you're having to commit to a, a high consequence um, experience. Yeah. But if you're hypervigilant of all the things that could go wrong,
2: yeah, you can't commit. Yeah. Well, or you don't commit very well. And you get hurt bad when you not commit. But the mm-hmm. more... Once you've decided that you're going to do something, uh, the more you let the fears of what could happen play in your mind, the more likely you'll fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're sort of looking around all the time saying all these things could go wrong, all these people could be predators and every single person is drawing your attention, then you don't see the one person who potentially is Mm -hmm. that'd be the, that'd be the potential. Mm Um, corollary there i'm not really sure that's i I don't have enough experience to say if that's true but um somewhere along the line we were talking about uh i feel like i wanted to get back to like the missing masculine Mm -hmm. yeah right i've been meaning to go back and study the history of this this is a bit of a hypothesis and i don't have uh i don't have a sense of, of like how well this aligns with the actual data. But I I like this idea that, that essentially like men and women are different and they, they fulfill different roles in a child. And Mm -hmm. within any man or woman, there is the masculine and the feminine, right? And, and you, you access both and use both as a male or a female when you're raising a child, right? And, but the polarity tends to fall out towards females are focused more on safety and more on nurture and males are focused more on encouragement. Mm -hmm. So with my kids, if they bump their knee and their mom's there and I'm there, they run to their mom, right? Mm -hmm. If mom's not there, they'll come to me, right? And I I will hug them and kiss them and do everything, right? But if they have a choice for who to be nurtured by, they want to be nurtured by their mother, Mm -hmm. right? On the flip side, when they're excited and they're uh, feeling playful and feeling like they want to push their edges, then I'm the parent of choice, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If they want to be swung through the air and thrown up uh, high and wrestled with and do parkour and climb trees, they want to come to me. And and so I think there's this really beautiful balance there between Uh, the role of something that, Basically, it takes care of the safety and the the well being, mm-hmm. and then the, the principle that helps the child grow and become more anti fragile. And I think that when when there's a lack of the the, the masculine pull of that, mm-hmm. that over time the the courage of the child and the the, the anti fragility of the child tends to not be developed properly. Yeah, and and I think that somehow. The, the role of the father in our culture has been lost mm-hmm. uh, to a significant degree. And I think it probably starts with the Industrial Revolution, and I'm not sure about this. But my theory is that w- m- through most of human history, we live in an agrarian communities. Mm-hmm. And in an agrarian community, there's usually a division of labor where um, – Women work closer to the house and men work further from the house, but they're all around the house and the farm, right? Mm -hmm. So your mom may be like doing the laundry and, you know, right next to the house and your dad may be out like with the cows in the field, but he's usually like yelling distance away, Mm -hmm. right? And so both parents get to play uh, a role in the child's life and in some sense, the, the, the shape of life reflects the shape of that encouragement versus, versus nurturance, right? Because Mm -hmm. the hearth, the fire, the, the cook pit, right? All those things are being taken care of in the center of your life. And at the edges and the parameters, that's where your, your father's space is. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that once the industrial revolution happens, all of a sudden the father's role is no longer on the farm. The father's role is Mm off-site, which means that he's no longer accessible. Right? And so the relationship of fatherhood to children changes fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that we're still trying to figure out what that means now. Yeah. I think that it you know that and various other things kind of resulted in 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 men either defaulting out of fatherhood or adopting a model of fatherhood that that was that was limited. Right, and so, like my father's generation is the the, the men who grew up in the sixties, mm-hmm. right, and like most of those most of my peers who grew up in the same community in the same area, their dads are kind of shitty at being dads mm-hmm. yeah right. they are they're they grew up in free love and freedom, and you know let's all get high, and when it came time to like take care of the business of being a responsible dad, like they didn't sign up for that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But what's weird to me is how many of those, like how many of those, the sons of those dads, I see are wonderful fathers, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like we had dads who didn't show up for us and we were like, we're not gonna be those dads. Mm -hmm. But then when you look back at like what my dad's generation of fathers was like, you hear all these stories about fathers who never told their children that they loved them. Mm-hmm. right. Who are all disciplined, all strictness. Like their whole role is to beat the devil out of the child. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think and I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but if you go back, like in another generation, then you're looking at the people who raised, who like came of age in the 1920s and that's the flapper generation and that's freedom. Again, that's, mm-hmm. that's irresponsibility. Again, that's drugs and alcohol again. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've been we've been like bouncing back and forth between these poles in some sense for a while. Mm -hmm. And, and like, I'm interested in this, like, again, I I really need to study this more to to know how robust this theory is or how well it accords with it. But I think also you see this weird thing about, about how masculinity is perceived. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we have a sense that traditional Western masculinity Is this like super restrictive, hyper masculine role where like you're never allowed to have emotions and you're not supposed to cry? Or at least I'm told that's how other people perceive it. Cause (laughs) I I grew up in the hippie community and I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Right? (laughs) Nobody ever told me that. Um but these, you know, somehow it's lots of people have the sense that like to be a man means you can't cry, you can't hug, you don't, you don't tell people you love them. But if you go back, like just not that long ago, you find that like it was normal for men to walk down the street holding hands and to, mm-hmm. uh, to to like sit holding each other and to sleep in the same bed and to send letters to each other talking about how much they loved each other. Oh, right? really? Like That's you can read about Abraham Lincoln, like, you know, doing that with the men that who he was close to in his life. And you can if you read Victorian era letters between men, or even look at pictures from the 1910s and 1920s, you see that the level of intimacy that was normal between male peers um, was totally unlike what was normal sort of mid 20th century. Whoa. And I don't know why that was lost, mm-hmm. but I think that our stereotype of what traditional Western masculinity is, is actually like a very brief sort of post-war, post-World War mm. II snapshot mm-hmm. that has sort of gotten fixed in our mind as what it was like, mm-hmm. but it actually wasn't like that before that. Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't know for sure, but I think that, that how fathers interacted with children uh, has changed a lot over time and that there is a, there's a much better version of it but i feel like the that somehow the i think part of this is actually structural i think that when any time that sort of the the let's say the the culture of parenting mm-hmm. breaks down it's going to tend to break on the male side more than the female I think side makes, yeah because of biology um but I I do believe that there were probably times in history when there was a lot better expression of fatherhood because we're seeing it right now in my generation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I feel like the type of people who you could see the type of people who could be Abraham Lincoln the type of, or like a Martin Luther King, right? Mm-hmm. Like these were men who 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 had been raised into a type of masculinity that that possessed a lot more depth and a lot more nuance and a lot more maturity in some sense than what we're seeing now mm-hmm. or what we saw in the last couple generations. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I have a sense that we, that there's a real lack of the positive masculine. And I think that, you know, you and I both in some sense have, have stepped into roles in life where people have been like, Oh my God I need that mm-hmm. right like these these boys who who are you know challenging behaviorally mm-hmm. right they're desperate for a sense of like somebody who's going to push me somebody who's going to yeah. support me somebody who's going to give me an opportunity to to test my limits and take risks mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that there's all these little subcultures like parkour like martial arts like skateboarding that became places for uh, Predominantly men in a lot of times to find that But you know it's something That's obviously for, I mean I obviously believe that it's very much for Both men and women yeah. but I do think yeah. that That those subcultures have uh, In some sense been Places where There could be experiments In masculinity and masculine oh, yeah. affinity mm-hmm. Yeah So that's, that's, that's just a a rant that, uh, that I've been, that I've been saving for a long time. And that, you know, your experiences when you shared with me sort of, uh, brought forth, but and that's, that's it's fascinating it.
0: too. Cause like, I even think about the daycare system, which if you, you know, you put your child in daycare and maybe I, I have this wrong, but you know, the majority of it is, is like, is, is, is a feminine
2: environment. Right? 90. I bet I I, w- I would bet that early childhood education is over 90%. Yeah. Um, uh, female. Oh, and to even back that up with the school that I was working at,
0: that's what they would say is that they'd actually, I say this in a nice way, they discriminate um, for men. Oh because yeah. I the, was told that too. It like was, I applied to work with young kids and they, they were just like, no. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh no. So the opposite. Yeah, yeah. So they all, oh, this whole oh. job description was like men needed please, oh. because it would be like, you know, physically and just basically yeah. mostly boys oh, and sure. mostly girl staff. <laughs> and it was like,
2: you, you know, and so- How old were these kids? You said up to 12? Yeah, no, all the way up to um, high school, but I was working with middle schoolers. Yeah. So, and, I mean, I, I've, I've been around these situation. So, they have like, you know, severely autistic 16-year-old mm-hmm. boys, you know, who are physically violent. And yeah. And they have like all female staff and it's- yeah
0: not so great no it's not and it's like also what i what i'd find is is like the majority of staff right is um we wouldn't have like we would have um some some autism a lot of it in the school is mainly behavioral um and what was interesting is that most of your staff they didn't have very many recreation Mm -hmm. uh, or they not a lot of recreational base and so most of the conversations of like between the staff and then also staff and student, um, there wasn't this big picture conversation to where like, what is your lifestyle look like? And what uh, what I think that means is, is like, if you're like going to work and you're coming home and you're, you're going to like party, watch a movie, I don't denigrate those things necessarily. But how that looks to me is, is like, you're trying to get me as a student, like I need to work really hard and I need to push myself. Mm hmm. What I know as an adult is that when you get into these roles, that often, that is not often how people approach these things. Like you get into a job and you, you sit in the job. Sure. You know, it's not most of the people that I meet in a workforce and I haven't been in these, like a workforce where you have to have like all, like a lot of degrees, a lot of like uh, obstacles to be able to get into there. Right. Mainly I've just been doing like general workforce things. Yeah, um, whether restaurant industry and manufacturing etc., cetera, and even the hospital industry. No, it's very rare that I find people there who are like showing up with their A game. They're like they're really committed and dedicated to this. But that was the expectations you would have on students. Sure. And that wouldn't be mirrored in the philosophy of this adult in their whole life. So when I talk about like, you know, what try why you try hard and why like it's whatever you're going to learn here or whatever you're trying to learn in this education system, you could apply to the things that you love, but there was no like clear connection with the adults. And I find that, you know, kind of still worth like parkour and all these other forms of recreation. And like you said, being bold and putting yourself out there. um, Like it's kind of lost in like the professional community and in like the big workforce, if you're not like pursuing a degree and you have like this highly specified career. And even in the, Um, educational communities it felt the same thing everyone was there because they needed a job and like I don't know how you convey the philosophy that you want you know you need to be here and you need to take on this responsibility and challenge yourself if you're not living that lifestyle yourself it's really hard to do it in that role because there's no like I couldn't I had to do I was like that only because of running in Mm jiu-jitsu it's not because I thought I should behave that way
2: right yeah we those things gave you some sense of meaning that was worth pursuing as a practice towards self-development. Mm-hmm. But like we said, there's a, there's a, there's a human tendency towards seeking ease. Yeah. Right. And the problem is that the more you make things easy, uh, the more things become difficult, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, 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 you have to be challenged, right? But we don't always want to be challenged. And it doesn't matter what situation it doesn't matter if you're white collar or blue collar. There's always a lot of people who want to find something that's comfortable and they don't have, and they can turn their brain off and they're just going to repeat, repeat, repeat. And obviously if you're trying to teach somebody, then you're asking them to do the opposite. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think, uh, Kids, no phonies, man. Right? Yeah. Like, like it's a, if you don't authentically try at least to live up to what you preach, um, I think children in general are especially sensitive to that. Like, they they don't have the same capacity for articulation that adults have, mm-hmm. um, but in some sense their intuition is stronger for that, right? Because they don't, they don't have a lot of ideas to get in the way of just perceiving and they're built to perceive and to observe so that they can learn. And if, and if you're saying children pay way more attention to what you do than what you say, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like I'm very big on my kids, not using screens a lot mm-hmm. and I use screens more than I should. Right. Right. And they, they know, right? Oh <laughs> yeah. <hell> yeah. <laughs> this morning I was in, uh, my daughter came in to wake me up, my three-year-old, and she was just playing me, with me in her bed, right? Uh, in my bed and she was, uh, we were, we were just having a lot of fun, but she like, she said that someone had sent her a message or something, and then she mimed swiping the message off of her screen, right? <laughs> And I was like, oh, wow, that's creepy. That's so weird. Yeah. Right? But they're they're Double paying that. attention, right? Whether you want them to be paying attention to that or not. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you're telling them, right, you know, mind your P's and Q's, be oriented towards the future, do all this stuff, and then you're, uh, you know, you're just, you're just uh, treading water yourself, then they're not going to want to do more than tread water. Yeah. And um, I found it, what you were talking about with- but- yeah, sorry. To let for... me. I wanna. I wanna add to that because. Mm-hmm. Because. I've seen this show up over and over again. So. I. I built a. You know, I, I co-founded the first parkour facility on the West Coast. It was probably wow. the fourth in the world. Mm-hmm. Back in 2000, we started the teaching program in fall of 2008. And then we opened our own gym in 2009. And the first generation of students that we had, uh, were, were awesome. And we had this group of coaches that I prepared and they're like apprenticed under me as a coach. Not that I had that much experience, but I was the only person who had any experience, right? (laughs) I'd been a gymnastics coach and I was very dedicated. And so it was like, we're going to create some hierarchy. We're going to, you know, do this and, and we'll, we'll be able to certify these coaches. So I had this group of like five coaches that I developed who were all really good. And then we. We had kind of the business grew and we needed to bring in another group of coaches and we started developing them. And for various reasons, some of my own failings, I wasn't as involved in that second gen of coaches Mm -hmm. and they ended up not, not as a group being especially great. Right. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I noticed is they stopped training once they became coaches. Right. Mm And the first group of coaches, all of them still train right they're ten years into their parkour journey, except maybe one i don't know if she's still training she's she's a mom she's got two kids and and a job right but the rest of them are all like as far as I know, really actively pursuing it mm-hmm. and that second gen of coaches um I'm not sure any of them are training right now mm-hmm. right and it it was like that complacency thing right they saw they saw this like m- path to like, I'm now part of the community and I can coast. <laughs> and that was totally destructive to the business in the long run. Right. And and they stopped making progress as, as human beings through it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even something like parkour, right. If the culture isn't attended to that tendency towards complacency can pop right up and become the default. I
0: got my forklift certification in the minting industry no. because my. No, uh, what certification? Forklift no. certification, forklift. so okay. I can drive forklifts. Oh, nice. My manager, I had to take a test. Yeah. And it was like the Toyota forklift certification test, right? Yeah. For insurance. And you know what they did? They gave me another piece of paper. And I'm like, here's the answers. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you over 80% of everywhere that I've ever worked for, especially in these like industrial kinds of things right like not recreational pursuits um i've been given the answers to the test like Mm -hmm. nine times out of ten and like or we would skip all of the information and just get right to the end and you probably already know it anyways and i get into jujitsu and these forms of recreation in the like the intensity of like the learning cycle how long it takes to really internalize something that's very simple right is insane you can spend a whole lifetime doing something on paper is very simple but internalizing it physically and being able to perform that technique is very challenging and there's all this room for improvement yeah for me to be able to improve if even thinking of like being a teacher I could teach but then I have to spend time outside of that practicing and training and improving and growing my, my ability. But I've never applied that to a professional like career. And I've never met anybody who's applied that like thought of like auto glass installation as that where it's like I'm doing, you know, strength training to like <laughs> improve my installation abilities. And I'm researching this outside of work. It was always or often just like showing up and in, in going to work. But if I were to do these other things, in even with a professional mindset, I like obsess over them. Yeah, but I can never imagine doing that for driving a forklift. But it's or, but it's, it's the not, same thing. It's not though. unimaginable, it's though.
2: unimaginable it's, though. It's actually not unimaginable. The book Flow by Mihad high. it was a great book, and it's about the the science of optimal experience. And he talks about that in there. The uh-huh. flow of work. He talks about there are people who find ways to create scale challenges within the most mundane of tasks. And they find work to be flow. I think one of the examples he gives is the world's fastest pizza box folder. Uh Right. Like this guy decided to make a craft out of folding pizza boxes. He worked at, I think it was Domino's or pizza, one of those. Right. Mm -hmm. And he just wanted to look at like how I can do this faster. And so he was able to make the experience of it access the flow state for him. And the thing is that when you, um, when you don't proactively, uh, try to improve at something, Mm -hmm. um, and you're doing it regularly, it's going to lead to essentially a negative emotional state, right? So you, your, your optimal experience is a state where you have high competence and high challenge. Mm. And, if you're um low in competence and high in challenge, you experience anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh the opposite pole where you're um high in competence and low in uh challenge is apathy. Mm-hmm. Or no, apathy is when you're got neither. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um but uh but yeah, it's essentially you're you're stale, you're bored mm-hmm. when you're when you're not challenged. And the interesting thing that he talks about in that book is actually that there. You, if you take the right mindset, you can find essentially infinite scale of challenge in any task.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there are examples of people doing every kind of work that he talks about, where they decided to 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 create flow in their work. Mm-hmm. And you can do it in kind of any way in, in, for any work. And those people, like he talks about factory workers, I think, mm-hmm. who like really dedicated themselves to their craft and how they became, uh, they really enjoyed their experience, but also they became really vital to their entire community. Wow. Right. So, um, so it's tragic if that's your experience of being around forklift people, because that says that, that we have a culture of work that is, that is really not serving anybody right now. And and that's what
0: I mean is more indicative of, because what I would find in jujitsu, right. I found that like, there's very specific and unique things to martial arts, mm. but really there's a lot of general experiences that I'm having, yeah. you know, and like, and I could see that that could exist in all of these other things, but the, it's more indicative of the culture, whether top down or bottom up mm. b- both ways yeah, and in May and within my own self, because in periods of my life, I've been there. Yeah. But I just found it very interesting that professionally, like, i see this all the time and recreation and, but I haven't seen this in profession in a profession, um, especially I guess what like blue collar work or like very like, um, you know, like anybody can a, apply, like even like a McDonald's for instance. Sure. And like, but the, but you are, what I got to is cause I would work these jobs and I'm like, well, means to an end. Mm-hmm. I hate this job. And I think negative thoughts and just allow mm-hmm. me to proliferate negative thoughts and try to do the minimal amount of effort so that I, what I thought would have the maximal amount of reserves outside of the work. And I'm like, well, no, I learned that I'm actually practicing n- bad habits here. Yep. And and I, and I'm this, this hours I'm spending at this job and this behavior that I'm having and not trying to do my best and not trying to find ways to get the flow state and to scale to, to grow, like are pulling me in a negative direction. And then the time outside of work is might be pulling me in a positive direction. Yeah. But that's affecting me too. And I realized that, like, it's my time. Like, I have my time that I'm alive, and like how I spend that's important. Even if I have an obligation to be somewhere, I still choose how I spend that time within that obligation.
2: Yeah. It's Henry Rollins, right? Yeah. You only got one life, you only got time. Yeah. Are are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, he tells a lot of beautiful stories about that. Like, that idea that, like, you know, wherever you are in life, wherever you want to be, or right, you start by being the best at where you are. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like even if you're a dishwasher, right, you can be the best dishwasher. And, and that's actually something because dishes need to get washed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you're contributing to the world being a slightly better place. And, you know, so many people have taken inspiration from the message and have like reformed their lives through being able to just do that. I actually, I ran into a, a kid I grew up with recently and he, uh, you know, we grew up next door to each other, you know, we were almost like brothers, uh, but he he had a more difficult sort of childhood situation than I did and, you know, got involved with the wrong crowd of people in, in high school and ended up selling drugs, mm-hmm. you know, and he went to prison, maybe just once, maybe more than once, right? And he only lost teeth because he was abusing drugs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he got out of prison, He was in prison. His brother was in prison and his sister were all in prison at the same time. And they all got out and he like used that as his moment to wake up and like take responsibility for his life. And he ended up working as a cook. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he decided to do it well. Right. I think he decided, I think he started as a dishwasher and decided to do it well. And then he got invited to come up and be a cook and he started Uh studying cooking and started getting into it. and. You know, here's a guy who's, you know, he must be 35, 36 years old now. And he's just beaming, right? He's beaming talking about what it has meant to him to put care and attention into the work that he does. Wow. Right? And, you know, it's it's blue collar work. He's, you know, he's he's slaving behind a fryer at a, you know, a local restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um but to him, it's like he could be in prison. Yeah, he could be slinging meth, right? Mm-hmm. But he's actually doing something that contributes. Like people eat the food that he makes. Yeah, and they experience joy and pleasure, and wow. he gets something out of it. That's beautiful. And somehow we uh, somehow we're not we're not teaching people that that's possible. Yeah, and how valuable that can be to them. And it's it's you know it's leaving people in a very vulnerable position to lives that are f- meaningless and nihilistic and and um, you know there's an opioid epidemic, there's a depression epidemic, there's an anxiety.
1: Done it's six. Getting there.
0: <laughs>
1: How long? Hmm? I think
2: ten
1: minutes. Fifteen minutes. <clears throat> but you've been on this for a long time, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dad times That's like um, Seeking all Seeking comfort Right Seeking Seeking comfort You know One of the ideas Another Jordan Peterson idea That I like Is that That all of us contain Within ourselves uh, A kind of uh, Heroic archetype Or divine Second self Right mm mm-hmm. Um, and we also contain within ourselves uh, every terrible thing that humanity has ever done. Yeah, right. And you know, you can call that the adversary or the devil, but it's a psychological reality within you. Right? Yeah. And that 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 propensity, right, is something that you don't want to become friends with. Mm-hmm. Right, you want to become friends with the part of you that wants the best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another thing that I think, right, to go back to the idea of like, where's the masculine and the feminine pole, and how are we expressing them, and are we are we getting balance, and are we doing it with maturity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you have to just give love to what you are, mm-hmm. including the darker elements. Sometimes the darker elements of your personality, the part of you that you think is the adversary, might be your best friend. Yeah, it's uh, this is helps. this is Jung's idea of the golden shadow, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we need to be able to look at ourselves and have forgiveness of even those darker parts of ourselves. But at the same time, um, if we are too indulgent of ourselves, if we are too if we if we feed the different parts of ourselves indiscriminately, mm-hmm. then we can grow things that we don't really want. Right. Mm. We want to become friends with the parts of ourselves that want the best for us and want the best for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh. and I, I think that that's just, uh, that, that when we lack the, the, the masculine pole, mm-hmm. that it's easier for the self-destructive aspects of the selves to grow because mm-hmm. there's a, uh, in, in our culture, we've become right? Like discrimination is the worst thing that you can do, mm-hmm. but discrimination is, is, is also the description of a skill that you need. You need to be able to discriminate between what is good and what is bad. Yeah. Right. And you know, we have, we have, we have elevated tolerance to the highest principle. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but sometimes what you need is to not tolerate yep. that aspect of yourself that is self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, like right down at the cellular level, right. There's there, you replicate and you, and you destroy yourself, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're killing off cells all the time. And if you don't kill those cells off, you get cancer. Yeah. Right. So when we don't have a balance between destruction and creation, when we don't have a balance between discipline and care. When we don't have a balance between encouragement and nur- or nurturance, mm-hmm. the system tends to become out of balance, mm. right? And so we, we. I think that we're missing something that helps us discipline ourselves such that we can grow, mm. such that we can love ourselves better in yeah. some sense. And oh, that's
0: really beautiful, man. I do want to be respectful of your time, sure. though.
2: Um, where can people find out more about you, Rafe? Uh, yeah, my website's evolvemoveplay.com. Uh, mm-hmm. We have an online academy uh, filled with classes and interesting lectures and a really amazing community. Uh, so people can uh, message us about that. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, uh, I'm mostly using Instagram and YouTube these days. We have okay. also our podcast, um, which is on YouTube, but also Stitcher, Spotify, Hi. Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and yeah, there's tons of material out there. I've been sort of putting my stuff out there for... Many years now, so there's lots to dig through. Uh, And people can uh, contact me through my website if they have any questions. All right, sweet. I'll make sure to leave all the links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Rafe. Yeah, no problem.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Woo! Rafe was a fascinating dude, and I really enjoyed his company. I like the way that he's integrated his experience in the... um, in the physical recreation and movement with self-development. And and if you want to check out a cool video by Rafe and um, Dusty, who's a former guest on the podcast, uh, you could head over to becominghumanpodcast.com and check out the episodes notes. And there's a sick video of him sliding around and jumping into drop pools on um, a beautiful, canyon here in north cascades in washington um it was really cool to see how he was able to use the environment to um to like jump around and flip and play and have fun and even test his own you know his own limits and inabilities Uh, If you guys enjoyed the episode, um, be sure to share it with a friend. Go over to becominghumanpodcast.com. You can also find it on all your favorite podcast platforms. Check us out on social media, on Instagram, at becominghumanpodcast. And I'm going to play you out with a song called Liquid Sovereignty by Idea and Abilities. It's one of my favorite
1: have a good week bye everyone wants to get out of the rain wants to be free wants to see no more pain we're guaranteed that the seasons will change till then i'm keeping sunshine on my brain when the drops hit my head they leave a stain everyone wants to get out of the rain everyone wants to get out of the rain everyone wants to get out of the rain harvested love only comes after rain even though it brings overwhelming strain it falls from all skies so i can't complain Without it our growth would not be the same Most people like to have someone to blame But it falls randomly not taking aim It makes up one half of the yin and yang Without the water you can't have the flame Without the water you can't have the flame Some are content holding ground in their game But when my soul steps to exit this frame I will be reincarnated as rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Wants to be free, wants to see no more pain We're guaranteed that the seasons will change, till then I'm keeping sunshine on my brain, when the drops hit my head they leave a stain, everyone wants to get out of the rain, we cannot avoid nature's bleeding vein, but I smile while it trickles down the drain. Thought only comes after rain Artists may talk and give it different names When they appear wet they may feel ashamed So they don't walk but instead take the train And when that ride stops they notice the strange Sense of degeneration they've obtained While the world evolves they stand and turn lame Storm is prerequisite to mental gain Storm is prerequisite to mental gain Philosophies like that simple and plain Poets play with words to keep themselves sane You do your thing while the clouds pour the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Wants to be free, wants to see no more pain We're guaranteed that the seasons will change Till then I'm keeping sunshine on my brain When the drops hit my head they leave us stain. Everyone wants to get out of the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Harvested skill only comes after rain Architects build under sun so they claim But when the puddles decided to hang It's when their hands get the plans that return Every man secretly hopes he can tame The beast he fears most cause it can't be slain Towering gray faces laugh so deranged One day we all will break free from their chains One day we all will break free from their chains And rise towards the sun with good health sustained It's almost impossible to explain But I owe all my success to the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Wants to be free, wants to see no more pain We're guaranteed that the seasons will change Till then I'm keeping sunshine I know my brain When the drops hit my head they leave a stain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain Everyone wants to get out of the rain